So welcome back to the show. Uh, my guest today is Andre Liu, one of my favorite authors and the author of uh, one of my favorite books, The Myth of Safe Pesticides. Uh, today we're gonna be talking about which is more efficient, like a factory farm model or an organic farming model in terms of like who's better at feeding the world? Because when I give grocery store tours, a lot of people tell me like, oh, it's great to not have to grow food with a bunch of like chemicals and a bunch of uh, machinery and a bunch of like patented genetically modified seeds. But how are you going to grow? How are you going to feed the rising population of the world without the modern industrial agricultural system? So. Andre, you can take over from here. He's an expert on the subject. You can give yourself a quick introduction as well uh, for listeners that don't know about you. Okay, look, thanks so much, Eugene. It's a pleasure to be back on your show. And it's actually a pleasure to talk about this. This is one of my favorite subjects because it's one of the great myths that are put out there. You know, if we don't poison our food and, and destroy our gen genetic diversity by genetically modifying it, no, we're going to starve. And it is a mythology. So let's pull this mythology apart. The, you know, the big thing is, oh, we need to have pesticides and we need to have genetically modified plants to feed the world. If you want to look at the figures, uh, global hunger was decreasing from the 1960s down to the mid-1990s. It was steadily decreasing and less and less people were going hungry. And then in the mid nineties, that changes and you can see this uptick of hunger as more and more people now are getting hungry. And that uptick correlates beautifully with the increase in GMO Roundup ready crops as as we see the increase in acreage, we see an increase in the hundreds of millions of people who are food insecure. Food insecure means there's times of the year where they just don't eat. On top of that, we have another uh, 2 billion people who they, they get enough empty calories, but they do not get enough nutrition. In other words, vitamins, minerals, antioxidants. And so because of that, they're prone to a whole range of nutritional diseases such as anemia and uh, beta carotene or vitamin A deficiencies, which makes them open to a whole range of infections and, and, and other illnesses that we see as a result of this lack of an adequate diet. So, you know, the other really, really important issue here is you know, people say, oh, we need to, we need GMOs to, you know, grow enough food to feed the world. One, we're seeing that it hasn't fixed uh, this global hunger. It's increasing as we increase GMOs. But the other factor we need to get across is then we, we, when you look at, at the amount of calories or food that is growing, it is three times what we need to feed the world. Three times. And two thirds of that is wasted in, in a whole range of areas. So we're looking at an incredibly inefficient system. We, we waste it, for instance, um, you know, instead of feeding people, we feed trucks and cars with ethanol. And, you know, we, you see 
soybeans grown in the Amazon and, and, and sent in boats and sent up to these animal concentration camps, the animal prisons, confined animal feeding operations to feed cattle for meat in China or Europe or in the US. And you know, for every 10 pounds of soybean protein, one pound of animal protein is produced. Now, how inefficient is that? You know, when it's just absolutely ridiculous that we've got to clear thousands of acres of rainforest unnecessarily just for, uh, you know, the inefficient production of, of, of animal proteins. So let's talk about the alternative then, you know. The, Alternative is, oh, no, oh, look, we're going to have more GMOs and more pesticides and we need to clear more land. Well, why, why do we need to clear more land? The, the other part of this system is not only do we have a close to half the world, three billion people who are not fed, we're now seeing the other side, where in the wealthy parts of the world, we have an obesity epidemic. They are overfed with this system. So we don't have a production problem, we have a distribution problem. Doesn't matter how much more we grow, doesn't matter how much more yield we get, the people who need the food are so poor they can't buy it under a free market system. We can grow more, but it'll just give more obesity. We, what we have to do is look at local systems and food sovereignty. We need to produce food where it is needed by the people who do it and let's let's look at that the real figures industrial agriculture produces only around 30 percent of the food that we eat in the world the other 70 percent is produced by the small scale family farmers around the world and in the developing country where most of the underfed people are, the food insecure people are, they produce 80% of the food. So here's the problem. The people who produce most of the food that we eat in the world are also tend to be the people who are food insecure. We have a huge problem in how we can produce it. So can organic agriculture do it? Well, let's look at the facts. And, and I want to quote a really good study done by two United Nations organizations, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development and the United Nations Environment Program. And they looked at 114 organic projects in Africa. And that covered around 5 million acres and just under 2 million farmers. And where we taught these farmers how to go from what is called organic by default or neglect to organic by design, where we teach them how to improve the soil, build up soil organic matter, how to bring in agroecological methods to, to uh, deal with pests and, and, and diseases, how to increase the biodiversity on the system, and on average, we got a 116% increase in 
you know, food production. And 108, 100, just under 130% increase for East Africa. This is the way we feed the world. We don't have big commodity industrial agriculture and transport halfway around the world to feed uh, cruel animal prisons. We do it locally. We teach them how to use proven organic agroecological systems and we can double the yield and feed those communities. It is simple, it's effective, and we know it works. Gotcha. And can you kind of, um, can you also touch on, in term, you kind of already hinted at some of the inefficiencies of the industrial system, but can you also kind of touch more on the logistics in terms of, uh, I don't know if you have the exact numbers, but like I remember reading one article and it said, basically to produce like one like 40 calorie tomato, it costs like an equivalent of like a thousand calories worth of energy under the current uh, industrial agricultural system. Yeah, so the industrial agricultural system is wholly dependent on fossil fuels on every level. Part of it is transport, and you know we know so much will get grown on one side of America, say for instance, particularly in California and Central Valley, and trucked across the U.S. When we start looking at it globally, it's even bigger distances. Now, for instance, we're seeing the Amazon being burnt down, and, and Indonesian rainforests being burnt down, African rainforests being burnt down for commodities such as GMO soy. And these are then, you know, that truck, sent in trucks to, uh, you know, to be put on big super tankers to be sent to, you know, China or, 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 or to Europe where they use, not to feed people, but to feed these uh, animal prisons. And like I said before, you get a 10 to 1 inefficiency. You get one pound of animal protein for every 10 pounds of soy protein. But when we start talking about calories, we're starting to look at, you know, for, um, you know, for every calorie of energy burnt, we're getting less than one calorie of food produced. And can I say, it's not even the transport. The, the biggest use of energy and it's also, you know, say this, these are fossil fuels, so these are major contributors to greenhouse gas and climate change, are actually the synthetic fertilizers that are used. A huge amount of energy is needed to fix it, and most of that is by burning fossil fuels. And then that is also transported halfway around the world to the farms to be you know, used as fertilizer. So, and that actually puts out more uses more calories and more greenhouse gases than actually the actual transport of the food itself so but when we start combining then the diesel that is used on the tractors and the energy that's needed to make pesticides and transport them the energy needed to spray out all the pesticides we're finding that you know it is more than 100 to one you know you're getting less than one percent in calories from the calories that you burn and those calories when we burn them we're making carbon dioxide in other words greenhouse gases as well as nitrous oxide and methane and, and, and a whole range of others 
When we start going over to local regenerative systems, we are largely using solar energy to power our farming systems. And this is through photosynthesis. Leaves use photosynthesis to bring in carbon dioxide from the, from the atmosphere and water and use that as the basis of synthesis of glucose, which becomes all the foods that we eat. And so with these systems, if we do them properly, for every calorie we expend, you know, we, um, I mean, so it's the other way around. We, for every calorie, we produce 30 calories. In other words, we, we become, you know, we're, we're energy efficient. We are producing more energy than we are burning. And if we want to use that in terms of greenhouse gases and climate change, these systems now, instead of being one of the major contributors of climate change, which we know industrial farming can, can account up to 50% of our greenhouse gases when we look at when we factor in transport and go to local systems, it's the other way around. We can actually now sequester more carbon, take it out of the atmosphere, and change farming from being a major problem to a major solution of climate change. At the same time, we can produce more food and better, healthier food because it's not laden with toxic pesticides and we know it's higher in nutrition. And when you, uh, so first I have like two, two questions regarding uh, all your comments, but when you're saying uh, produce locally, do you mean like, for instance, let's say you have like a housing community and there are like four blocks in this housing community. Would one of the blocks be allocated towards like, for instance, production of crops, uh, production of fruits and vegetables for those other three blocks? Is that, is that kind of um, the, the mental picture you're providing in terms of local production? Look, I, I think in terms of distances, it's going to have to be relative to the scale of where people live. I'm, I'm always a bit hesitant in actually just putting in arbitrary miles because it depends on the density of communities and what can be grown. You know, we have to be realistic, but ideally we want to try and grow as much as possible, as close to us as possible. That should be the aim, you know. The, the word we're using here is food sovereignty. Local food sovereignty. We're empowered over our food and our food systems. We work with our local producers, our local farmers. And that might be, you know, um, in cities. I'm in Manhattan at the moment for climate change. week, And I know in my previous visits here, I've been to great community gardens here in Manhattan. And... You know, during World World War Two, when when there, there were victory gardens here in the U.S., they, you know, something like forty percent of all of the food that Americans ate came from urban victory gardens. That's what's possible. So we 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 could have an enormous amount of food grown in vacant lots in all our cities, in, in on apartments, you know, on you know, inside houses. There's so much we can do with local food production, plus, you know, in the regions outside our cities. The, the fact is we have more than enough land to produce all the food we need, more than enough. And we, 
we should not be clearing a single forest or tree anywhere to produce food. It is not necessary. And all that land that is being cleared at the moment is not being cleared for food. It's being cleared for industrial commodities like palm oil and soybeans, GMO, corn. Yeah, and I guess to support, to support your statement, I grew up on um, kind of like a pretty off-grid, like biodynamic farming Ukraine before moving to the States. And I remember when the Soviet Union collapsed and everything was like going super crazy, a lot of the supermarkets were kind of running out of food and there'll be like these huge lines, but basically like no food, maybe like one piece of bread on the whole entire shelf. But our community, which was basically, I don't know, like 100 people, maybe like 150 people max, didn't have like any problem with food scarcity whatsoever because we basically were self-sustaining and not reliant on like a bigger food production system. So if kind of like something happened with that system, you're pretty much kind of screwed because you have like no way of getting food and you don't even know how to grow your own food even if you do want to because it's been outsourced for so long. Yeah, look, look. Uh, actually, my wife and I, we were actually in the Soviet Union during those times. My wife speaks Russian and she went there at university. And that's one thing I, I, I remember vividly, uh, the long lines, you know, in the cities, go out to the rural village Russia where people still have their traditional gardens and they had an abundance of beautiful, fresh food. And, you know, really, I, I think it's, you know, that's the beauty of this system. It builds a resilience, an incredible resilience. And we need to get back to this sort of our food culture and our love of food. We've lost it, you know, this junk food, industrial food that is fueling a health epidemic around the world has to end. We need to get back to, you know, fresh, natural, you know, the fresher it is that the healthier it is with no pesticides grown in good, healthy soil. So it's full of minerals and antioxidants. It's got flavor, you know, and just celebrate, you know, these wonderful, fresh, full flavor and seasonal ingredients. You know, that, that really is what we should be aiming as the ideal. You know, we can still, you know, have our favorite French cheese or Argentinian wine or something like that. Like, I'm not going to be, um, have to say, a, a fundamentalist on this, but I think our primary objective should be that we should look at the bulk of our food is fresh and local. And do you have like any input or any numbers on the progression of urban farming. I know it's becoming more popular in the US now. I kind of like see a lot of TV shows on it where you would have like these huge, like you mentioned before in the past uh, Victory Gardens in like New York, you'd see these huge skyscrapers and all of a sudden there's like a huge lot of yeah. just vegetables being grown. You have like the, I know that's probably still like super small scale and barely makes a dent in the food production system or maybe on yeah. you can tell me, but can you, do you have um, more input on how that's progressing? Look, actually, I, I did have the figures, and I can't quite remember them. But I, I, the, the the one which I think for me is telling is in the U.S. There was a steady decline of farmers uh, over the last century until 2014. States like Nebraska, for instance, you know, 
by the time the year 2014 had less than half the amount of people in them than they did 100 years before. People were just leaving. And in 2014, for the first time in 100 years, the trend reversed and the number of farmers increased. And that is because of the homestead movement. And they're mostly young, very educate, well-educated uh, people who wanted to go into, you know, back into farming and they're going into organic, biodynamic, uh, you know, regenerative systems, looking at, you know, using agroecology, very diverse systems and essentially small, mostly small scale local systems, you know, setting up CSAs, farmers markets. This is the revolution. And we're seeing this increase, not just in the US, but around the world. In, in my role as president of iPhone, where we get the figures, uh, you know, what we're seeing is while globally, the world is losing millions of farmers every year, we're growing up to 200,000 new farmers a year in the organic sector, which shows that we are viable. We are the only sector that is growing farmers and we're doing it globally. It's not just you know, one or two countries. It's a system that works you know, for farmers because they, they're financially viable and also works for their communities as well. Do you feel like an underlining issue with not having this uh, self-sustainable food production system is the fact that it's like the huge rising corporations in the world in general, and that like most people now are just kind of uh, basically uh, kind of like a cog in a huge machine and they have to spend basically like, I heard a uh, Gallup, uh, member of Gallup poll like two years ago, like the average American is working like 55 hours a week. Uh, how would that, how would that, fit into this self-sustaining agricultural system? And I mean, if the person's working 55 hours a week, how are they gonna have enough time to, uh, I guess like maintain like a, even a small self-sustaining garden? Uh, I, I think that's the big problem now is with our work-life balance that you know, it's, it's a lot of people, their life is just consumed by their job. And it's also, how can you say, part of where we can see massive social problems as well because we don't have our proper work-life family balance. Other cultures actually, in particular in Europe, where, where um, you'll see that in many places they have that better balance, a lot of them will actually have uh, these you know, community gardens in their small plots and they see you know, summer after work, you know, it's just nice on a, on a late summer evening to go out and uh, it's part of their relaxation, it's part of their social life, you know, with all their other friends doing it. And, you know, this gardening, producing flowers and fruit, you know, as, as, a, as a way of de-stressing from work as part of social life, you know, is very important. And we now have the science showing how getting into doing gardening is so good for your health because it's, it's one of the best forms of exercise, being active. It's good for your mental health, your social life, as well as this whole idea of being able to grow something, produce it yourself and eat what you produce, this whole change in our food culture. So I think we've got to look at ways that we can 
enable people to reconnect with what, as humans, we've always been. You know, we, we've essentially been gardeners for hundreds of thousands of years. It's, it's part of our DNA. It's part of who we are. And we've lost that connection with it. And where we do, when we do reconnect with it, it brings us multiple benefits, not just for food, but mentally and physically as well. Yeah, I guess the deeper question is, you know, like people are working more, making less, have worse food. I guess like who's, yeah. really, who's really benefiting at the end of the day, you know, or what yeah. super small percentage of people are actually benefiting from that kind of like a corporate industrialized system. Yeah. Look, look, I think this is where, you know, unfortunately, this is what we're actually seeing now is this whole corporatization and it's getting harder and harder for family businesses at any level to survive. But for us, what we want to do is start building these alternative systems. We have to have alternative systems. You can't let the whole world be run by a few giant, too big, so-called too big to fail corporations. This is, you know, we can't let our planet be run by Silicon Valley, which is what will happen if we don't do, if we don't, don't basically empower ourselves. And you know, there are ways to do it. Farmers markets, I think, are really wonderful. Joining a CSA, you know, um, and supporting your local farmer. All these are ways that we can do it, even if we don't have the time to do it ourselves. We can support others who are doing it and build these alternatives to the big supermarkets. Gotcha. Yeah. Can you also, can you also kind of like rewinding back a little bit? I know you mentioned a lot of the conversion ratios in terms of um, 10 pounds of soybeans to get one pound of meat. And a lot of uh, vegetarians, for instance, stress that meat eating in general kind of is destroying the planet. And I do agree with them in the sense of factory farmed meat, but can you kind of go over in terms yeah. of the production differences of what inputs go into factory farm meat, which is mainly genetically modified corn and soy versus what inputs go into like meat raised on a biodynamic environment that's basically fed a species specific diet of just like natural food that would be found in that environment anyways. Look, th thanks for asking that because that's a really important question. And this is a debate we have to have. It's not, oh, uh, you know, don't eat meat, we save the planet. It's not that simple. Don't eat factory farmed meat. All the problems we see are from factory systems. But we know with proper uh, regenerative management, with, for instance, holistic managed grazing now, we can produce meat that is good for the environment. We can, you know, these systems will increase biodiversity in the pastures instead of uh, depleting it. When you go on these systems, the amount of biodiversity in plants and, and native animals that come back uh, increases dramatically. We also know that we have negative greenhouse gas emissions from these systems. So in other words, instead of meat, which is one, factory farm meat, which is one of the great contributors to climate change with methane and carbon dioxide, the properly managed regenerative grass systems and factory systems where animals are integrated into, uh, sorry, farming systems where animals are integrated 
properly into the farming system, we sequester more carbon than they put out. In other words, they can mitigate climate change. And we have the evidence where we can use regenerative grazing on the rangelands of the world and we can significantly lower the amount of greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere through uh, in industrial agricultural and manufacturing systems. The, the fact is that 68% of our agricultural lands are rangelands. They are too arid for cropping unless you have irrigation. And we're at the point now where we can't do more irrigation, more dams and canals without doing serious environmental damage. So having proper regenerative grazing management where we we can restore these degraded rangelands and bring them back to high biodiversity systems. And at the same time, these systems take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and put it in the soil as soil organic matter. We can actually reverse climate change. So it's not about eating no meat. It's about we don't eat meat from factory systems. And if we eat meat, it's only from proper regenerative systems that we know are helping the environment. These are the systems. So, um, you know, eat meat from, you know, there's grass-fed, the American Grass-Fed Association. They have, you know, they have really good management systems. That is the meat you could eat. But I wouldn't be eating any meat from factory chickens or, or you know, factory-fed uh, animals. Yeah, another website people can check out is called eatwild.com. I don't know if you're familiar with that site, Andre, but it's basically, it has like an interactive map. I don't know if it has it for other countries, but for the US, it has an interactive map where people can basically click on their state and it'll show you exactly where all the pasture raised, like 100% pasture raised operations mm -hmm. are, where all the biodynamic farms are, uh, yes. even like farms that have like permaculture and all that stuff. And you can just, it literally has an arrow and you can click on that arrow. It gives you the website, some cool pictures, and then you can contact that farm directly. So instead of just kind of saying that, but me and Andre are trying to also provide solutions, like easy solutions. And a lot of those yeah. farmers also do at-home delivery as well, which kind of uh, brings, me, uh, brings me to the next question. Do you feel, Andre, that the reason small-scale farming or the type of farming you're describing, which is regenerative to the earth and actually has better employment and just gives better lives to communities in general, do you feel the reason it hasn't kind of skyrocketed in popularity is because those systems haven't mastered the convenience of the supermarket system? Yeah, look, there's a whole range of, of, of reasons. One is that there's been so much disinformation against these systems and people are told that industrial systems are, are the efficient systems and that's the way to go and so many farmers are locked into their industrial systems um, in many cases they're locked in by debt you know the thing is with the industrial agricultural systems yeah you know the farmers need to borrow so much money to pay for the chemicals pay for the diesel you know um, pay for the fertilizers pay for the seeds that they are in perpetual debt and it's very impossible for them, really difficult for them to make a shift. 
to move out of it. So that's one. The other one that can be can be difficult for some of the young people to start because they they don't have experience in farming. Farming actually you know, commercial farming does require a lot of skill and knowledge. And some people at times go into it naively with a sort of lifestyle notion, but quickly find that that, that isn't the lifestyle for them. So there's those issues. Then there is the issue of marketing. And get you know, the supermarkets have monopolies and they work with huge monopoly industrial um, agri- agriculture um, companies that produce it. So it's really hard for a lot of the uh, new farmers to actually break in, into the market and get markets to sell their produce. And so you get this sort of disconnect between, you know, it's being grown, there are consumers um, nearby who want them, but there's no way of connecting them together. And that's an area where we need to work and build what I call these alternative systems. If we can actually get alternative systems where we can make it easy for consumers to buy regenerative, organic, biodynamic products, then we, 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 will, see the, we will see the growth. The, the consumer demand is there, that's for sure. It's just, we just, um, the best way is, uh, marketing is a chokehold there. A few companies control it all. And it's very difficult for others to get into it. And those, peop- those ones who control the, you know, have the chokehold, basically make all the money. And the people on either side of it, the consumers and the farmers on the other side, are the ones that pay the price for these large corporations who make billions having these chokeholds. Yeah, I don't for know. For me, that, that's why we need to have more farmers markets. We need to have more CSAs. We need to have more mom and pop stores, you know, get back to corner stores like they used to be, you know, and, and start demo- especially democratizing our food system, put it back in our control. Yeah, and I remember, like, at least in the U.S., I think, like, anytime you go to a grocery store, you see, like, an abundance of items. But, like, pretty much, I think, like, uh, from my understanding, 12 to, like, 14 different companies basically produce, like, 90% of the products in the store. Yeah, they own all the brands. Yeah, so exactly. it's kind of like you have, like a vi- like, a very select few basically dictating what the bulk of majority of Americans end up eating. Exactly. And I don't think, you know, how can you say, to fight against to try and change that is a losing battle. What we need to do is build a better system, a system that is democratized, it's transparent, and it's empowering for all the participants in it. Everyone gets their fair share in, in these systems. Yeah, and this having- is what, you know, what we need to work on. And they're there, you know, they are there. Food co-ops are an ex- really good examples of them. Yeah, and talking about, uh, you know, deep market consolidation of the agricultural industry. Can you also touch on uh, to the listener, uh, basically 
how that system works in terms of like how it works under a vertically integrated system. Because a lot of times people still think like, um, like just a small farmer is still producing that food, uh, that food that you see at the supermarket, that factory farmed food you see at the supermarket, and they may be producing that, but they're actually producing it under like a vertically integrated system. And you touched on it a little bit in terms of how much depth the farmer has to go uh, get into to get into that system, which kind of enslaves them to basically the people that run that system. But can you kind of break down okay. that system so the listener can have like a good mental image of how that really works? Well, usually it's larger farmers who, who say, for instance, if they're you know, going to produce chickens at a, at a large scale, for because there's a handful of of companies in the US who produce most of the um, most of the, the the chicken meat that people eat. So if someone wants to go into it, they they normally have to have a a contract with one 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 of these companies companies they build the sheds they essentially have to buy most of the feed from them they have to buy the actual breed of chickens and there's a they're, they're really limited to what they can do they have to produce them in a certain time span and their contract is to produce x amount in such a, you know a time and so it's designed so Basically, that it's only economies of scale. You put you, you invest millions, it costs you millions to run it, and you get a small percentage. But it's only by having a large amount that you can actually make a good income. Now, if something goes wrong because your percentage is so long, they quickly go into debt and they can't pay it back, or it's very hard for them to pay it back, and they lose it all, and then then someone else goes into debt to, to try and do the same thing and basically the you know it's the same someone wants to grow carrots or, or tomatoes you know they they the same thing again they might be in big greenhouses or or, or fields of thousands of acres and they're contracted to do it at a at this big level and you know running on debt and I know what's happened to friends of mine who, who have been in this position. Suddenly, the supermarket decides to um, change the rules and, and, and won't buy it one day. And next thing you know, they're, they're stuck with there's several thousand acres of carrots they can't sell. And that's it. That's the end of their business. And other growers see that. And so they're too frightened to move or too frightened to do anything because they know that um, that could happen to them and their business is over as well. So it really is, you know, the word I use is corporate debt slavery. These people are debt slaves to the banks and to, to, to their markets and they can't move and, and, and they don't have the resources or the money to change. And they don't know also because these are essentially monopolies where else they could sell their, their produce if they wanted to. Yeah, I guess that's another problem because of the deep consolidation. It's like, dude, if it doesn't work out with this one vertically integrated company, you have basically like one or two other companies in the whole entire country you can possibly work with. So you're kind of like basically just stuck because you're in a lot of debt, plus you don't have many, many employers for the most part. Yeah, and, and generally speaking, if one of those companies has dumped you, 
the other ones won't pick you up. They'll, 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 you've got a red flag. That's it. You're over. You're finished. Yeah, exactly. And then the other the other issue with uh, like the fact or industrial agricultural system is they outsource like a lot of their costs to the taxpayer. Like regarding yes. what you mentioned, um, uh, basically the uh, farmer being indebted to to the banks, and if the farm farmer actually can't pay back that loan to the bank, there's like I forgot the name of it, but some agricultural relief fund that basically will allow the bank to get the difference of that money after they sold the farmer's land, the house, and the farmer's basically on the street, the difference yeah. can, will be subsidized from the taxpayer. Yeah, and look, that's the same with all subsidies. All subsidies are these distortions of, of the market that, that, and a cost to the taxpayer. But when we really look at, at, at the main subsidies that go to farmers, that usually works out about the same amount as they spend on their pesticides and fertilizers. So while it, you know, it is supposedly going to the farmer, the farmer then pays that to the pesticide cartels and the fertilizer cartels. So it, these are taxpayers paying subsidies to some of the richest corporations on this planet. And that's, you know, and the farmers themselves usually have virtually nothing to show for it in, in these systems. Yeah, I remember in this book called Foodopoly, I forgot exactly who the author was, but I remember, I forgot the exact number also, but I remember she quoted like in a box of like $7 cereal, the farmer basically gets like three cents. Yeah. Or something like super, super small. No, that, that'd, be, that, that'd be about right. Uh, we, we actually looked at some of the research compared to what farm, the percentage farmers got in, in the 1930s, where farmers were getting around 30% of the retail price, to now it's less, less than 1% of the retail price goes to the farmer. You might pay a dollar for something, but less than a cent will go to the farmer. Yeah, and the weird thing is, is like it looks like the farmers are making mess, uh, less and less, but food is still becoming more and more expensive. Yeah, you know, that's what like. Yeah, that's what I was saying. The chokehold is the people in the middle. They're the corporations. This handful of corporations that control the market that make all the money. So food, as, as I was saying, people are being ripped off both ends. Farmers are being screwed in many cases. Farmers are getting paid the same price for their produce as they were 30 years ago. Now tell me who could work in a job and get the same wage that people were paid 30 years ago and survive, paying rent and everything else you've got to pay, which farmers have still got to pay. And at the same time, the consumers are paying more and more. Food is not getting cheaper. And that profit goes to the, the big people in the middle. You know, have a look, you know, a classic now, you know. Um, who's the richest man in America? Jeff Bezos. Billionaire. You know, multi-multi-billionaire. And you start looking at, 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 at Cargill and, and all the, you know, the pesticide companies and, and the big egg companies. And these are some of the richest corporations on the planet worth you know they they 
make billions and billions and billions at the expense of consumers and farmers. And we would argue that, that there needs to be another system because there's enough wealth that, that we, can, we, we can do these systems so that farmers get their fair price, the people who work for farmers get their fair wage, and consumers pay a fair price. And the people who work in retail and everywhere else get a fair price instead of the 1% getting, you know, really what, 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 what is, you know, considered extreme wealth. It's obscene wealth. There is no need for anyone to have that amount of money, particularly when people are being screwed for them to, to, to steal that amount of money. Yeah, and you kind of touched on this before, but that industrial system is like extremely fragile. It basically, uh, kind of like you mentioned before, requires huge amounts of quantities of this like one specific food group, like say chicken to be produced, and if like for one year or two years, those huge quantities aren't produced like whatsoever, the company just folds for the most part. Yeah. At least that's what I took away from this book called like uh, The Meat Racket. I forgot the author as well, but he basically kind of outlined that these companies are also just forced to produce these huge obscene amounts of numbers, even if it is destroying the environment, even if it is screwing over small farmers. Because kind of like if like one or two years goes by without them producing these huge numbers, they basically end up folding. Look, exactly. And, 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 and this is a huge problem. But it's not just the meat racket. We, we, we're starting to see it now uh, you know, in, in the fake meat, meat racket. Oh, yeah. When you start That's looking at these pseudo meats that they're, they're trying to pretend are you know, environmentally friendly, they're produced from the same destructive industrial systems and controlled by the same destructive you know, billionaire corporations, exploitative corporations, and you know, pretending that, that, that they're good for the environment and good for health. They're, they're selling junk food, just you know, toxic, essentially you know, nutritionalist-free junk food and pretending it's healthy and pretending we're going to solve climate change when it's the opposite. These are, you know, are coming from GMO soy and other other um, damaging systems, and people are being fooled into buying it. You know, they're getting sold these mythologies. When you know, people like if you want to, if people want to be vegans. There's plenty of really good natural legumes and other protein sources without having to have these fake meats you know being whether you eat meat or not is a personal choice but i i i just find it wrong that that somehow you know these fake meats mean that it you know there's no need to eat meat anymore and they're really giving the wrong message to everybody with them. Yeah, and also the worst part is, uh, of course, it's processed and like the raw ingredients are predominantly like GMO corn and soy. Yeah. And even if you yeah. buy, even if you buy the organic version, it's still like predominantly corn and soy, which is going to shoot yeah. like the inflammation way up in your body if you just eat that on a daily basis. Obviously, exactly. like, the bulk majority of 
diseases just arise because of chronic inflammation in your body. So you think the people eating it think they're actually doing a service to their body when they're really doing like a disservice. Yeah. You know, there's plenty of really good legumes that have been eaten traditionally in vegan cultures around the world that will give you all the proteins and minerals that you need and in, in a plant-based diet. And you don't need to have these artificial processed foods. You know, go, you know, it should be really, um, you know, I'm a great believer in that, that the bulk of our diet should be plant-based diets. And, you know, there are plenty of good, nutritious legumes and other vegetables and fruits that we can eat to have a healthy diet. And if we're going to eat meat, and, you know, it, 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 it's a personal choice, we have that meat from regenerative systems where it's integrated into proper farm systems. And the other part too is that these are humane systems. I think that is very important because the industrial systems are just so inhumane as well. You know, that's another reason, not just health-wise, environmental-wise, but you know, we, we need to ensure that whatever we do, we also treat other living beings humanely we have respect for other sentient beings yeah exactly and i guess the last the last question in this conversation is how do you kind of can you talk about the subject of like why organic food is more expensive if like this industrial obviously you talked about the subsidies of this industrial system which help reduce the cost in terms of the cost to the corporations but can you talk about why organic food is more expensive to the consumer even like supermarket level organic food. Okay. Yeah, the, the, the main reason is this, is that we're losing farmers, millions of farmers, because they're being screwed. They're being paid less than the price of production. As I said before, in many cases, farmers are receiving the same prices they did 30 years ago. This is ex exploitation. We are exploiting our farmers for cheap food. It's killing agriculture. The one thing about the cost of organic is that we're now starting to pay the true cost, the real cost of food, the true value. And I'm gonna use the word, it's not more expensive, we're paying, we're getting the true value. And that is allowing farmers to make a living and it's why we are, we are increasing organic farms because they can now make a living. That's one. But you know, we want to talk about value. The, the one we know that, that, that we have higher levels of nutrition with organic food. But for me, the big one is pesticides. And, and you hear, oh, look, the, the levels of pesticides in conventional food are so small. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with them. And in my books, I've shown how that is another mythology it is a huge lie we actually when it comes to children you know there is not one scientific paper published anywhere on the planet and i put the challenge out again there is not one scientific paper published in the literature showing that any level of pesticide is safe for children we have no data on pesticide safety for our children Yet, 
we have hundreds of papers showing that the smallest levels of pesticides damage our children, and particularly um, the developing fetus and young children and going into puberty. And we know that these pesticides are, are damaging the normal development of their brains, their reproductive systems, their hormone systems, their metabolic systems, and their immune systems. And that evidence is well documented. And that damage is coming from food because most people get their exposure of pesticides from food. And it's a cocktail of pesticides when you start looking at you know, what is in the blood and urine of children. There is absolutely no safe level for children. So I would argue that when you're talking about value, the cost of the autism or epidemic that we have at the moment, and I can show the evidence how glyphosate and other, um, which is the active ingredient of Roundup and other pesticides in food are, resp are responsible for a large proportion of the autism epidemic and ADHD and, and uh, then other problems that we see in children, that has come from the pesticides in food. So my argument is, you know, the true value of organic food is, you know, how do you say, is worth every cent, whereas you know, the real cost of conventional food is too expensive. What is the cost? of giving our children autism and giving our children a whole range of diseases. No, that is, no, the conventional food is too expensive. There is no way of ever repaying that cost of the damage that the pesticides in conventional food are doing to our children. Whereas, you know, the cost of organic food is the best value you will ever get in terms of making sure that your children have a healthy life and that's what we, we are you know as parents we're responsible to giving the best for our children and organic food is the best for our children yeah and for my also just really quick like for my research i did go to a local kind of higher end uh, organic store called sprouts in our area and then i compared it's kind of one of those half and half stores and i compared the nutritional or the cost of buying 2,000 calories worth of factory farm food to 2,000 calories worth of at least USDA organic certified food. And it ended up being like a $5 difference. The factory farm food was like per day, like $7.77. And then the or supermarket level organic was like $12.30 or something like that. So it is a $5 difference. But then on the other hand, also from my observation of being a fat loss coach for so long, is that people that don't shop organic also tend to eat out way more. Yeah. So they just overall spend more on food in general. That's even worse for them. It, it, exactly right. We actually find people shop organic tend to um, cook more healthier food, have more food at home, and their budget is um, much the same as uh, you know people who don't buy organic. But end of the day, I want to talk about the word value, true cost and true value. The true cost of conventional food because of the health problems it causes makes it too expensive. You know, it's, it's doing irreparable damage to our children. We can't afford that cost. Whereas organic food will give your children, you know, a great start in life, make sure that 
they have a good healthy life so that is the best value that you can get and that's what I, the word I want to use value for money and making sure that your children have a healthy life is the best value food on the planet yeah and also in my opinion like not just not just children but for adults too because yeah. i have a lot of adults especially during these grocery store tours come up to me and say like oh i've been eating this food all of my life and i'm ready 40 and i'm completely fine meanwhile they're like obese they have like knee and back pain they have like uh, gut like serious gut issues they're like on two pharmaceuticals they need like five cups of coffee to get through the day they have like sleeping issues i'm like come on you know at that point there's like a huge disconnect between what healthy is and then kind of what people understand that health is especially now that we have a global epidemic of what's called non-contagious chronic diseases such as cancer type 2 diabetes um you know the heart disease, stroke, we can go on and on and on with all these diseases. And the evidence points very strongly to uh, our nutrition, and that is poor quality food plus the effect of pesticides on us. It's a major cause. And really, by changing to organic food, we, we could actually reverse this global epidemic of non-contagious diseases very quickly and prevent it. So that's another reason why organic food is the best value food on the planet. Gotcha. Yeah, and I totally, totally agree with you. Well, for the listeners, I know you have um, two books out. I read one of them, The Myth of Safe Pesticides. What's the, what's the title of the second one that relates more to... Poisoning Our Children. Yeah, Poisoning Our Children, that's right. That's where I look at the science on pesticide safety for children and show how there's no evidence of safety for children, yet the evidence that pesticides are causing extensive damage to our children is overwhelming. Just so parents can understand why it is so important that their children eat organic, and and particularly for, for mothers before they even start having children, eat organic so that your children can have their best start in life. And do you have like, do you have like a personal website people can connect uh, on if they want no, to? No, I don't. It, um, it's available from my publisher, Acres USA, www.acresusa. Look, I'm sorry, but I've, I've actually got another call starting gotcha. at 5.30. Okay. Oh, well, it's not New York time. <laughs> gotcha. So, okay. Well, we're done. We're done. Either way. Thank you for being a guest. We're done with this episode either way. Uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate it um, for you taking the time to do this. So, yeah, thank you. Thanks, Andre.